Welcome to Answer the Call. I'm your host and go-to career coach, Kelsey Kemp. You're tuning into the Job Library series, which is a bingeable collection of to-the-point interviews with a vast variety of professionals to help you gain the exposure and the detailed info you need to find a career path you'll love. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Lauren War, and if that last name is familiar, it's because Alden War, her charming husband, was on the podcast a couple months back to talk about his journey in entrepreneurship and all the amazing feats he's accomplished thus far. And Lauren is obviously a standalone all-star all by herself, seeing that she is the amphibian red list program officer for global wildlife conservation. A little bit of a mouthful, but basically what that means is she works in wildlife conservation to specifically help assess the uh, health or the endangerment of amphibians, literally all the amphibians in the entire world, which is so crazy. And to me, Lauren is a real life combo of Eliza Thornberry and Steve Irwin. She has such a passion for wildlife conservation, and it is so, so cool to get to talk to someone who so fervently believes in how her work contributes to the creation God gave us to steward. You will be absolutely amazed by the limitless career options you could seek if you're even remotely interested in working in wildlife conservation. How about we just dive right into it? So here is my conversation with Lauren War. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on to share what it means to have a career in wildlife conservation. From the moment I met you, I was very interested. And if you remember, I probably had a lot of questions at the time. I'm just glad that we've come to see a day where now podcasting is a thing and everyone else gets to hear your answers to all these questions (laughs) and see if they might want to follow in your footsteps. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing. Of course. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Looking forward to it. Well, first off, can you just give a little rundown of what your position is and where you live? Uh, Of course. So I am currently based out of Houston, Texas, um, but I do my work remotely. So the organization that I work for is Global Wildlife Conservation, and they have two main offices in D.C. and then in Austin. Um, But a lot of us work all across the globe. So um, it's a really fun environment. Um, My position is the Amphibian Red List Program Officer, um, which is a fancy way of saying that I focus on amphibian conservation. Um, If you're familiar with the IUCN Red List, um, which some people may be, some not so much, essentially the IUCN is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, and they publish what they call the Red List, which is essentially a um, conservation status assessment or an assessment of extinction risk for all the species in the world um, or our best ability for every species in the world. Um, And so the team that I work for at GWC focuses on creating those um, assessments, compiling all of the relevant data and comparing it against criteria that the IUCN has put out to establish a category um, that every species would fall under. So we do that for all the amphibians of the world, um, which is a tall order, but is lots of fun. Um, Sounds like quite the task. (laughs) It's it's a time. Um, There are always new species being described, which makes it um, an ever-changing goal line, but it's fun. I think we're up to a little over 8,000 at this point. So, yeah. (laughs) But it's a good time. Essentially, too, to kind of add a little bit more context, if you ever are in a conversation and somebody says that a species is endangered or critically endangered or vulnerable or anything like that, those are the terms that the IUCN Red List uses. And so they're the entity that puts out those categories. So that's what we do. Oh my goodness. You're just recalling or bringing up all these memories I have from um, growing up on the Gulf Coast and doing sea camp every (laughs) single year for like nine years. And I did this Oceans in Jeopardy competition. And so I had to be like, yes, manatees are endangered. (laughs) I love that. I I might not even, I, well, I hope they're not now. Who knows? Anyway, you might know actually. (laughs) Um, so first off, how did you even get exposed to wildlife conservation and realized, I want this to be my job. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. I can't really pinpoint an exact 
exact moment where I went, ah, this is it. This is the thing I'm going to do with my life. Um, it's kind of more of an accumulation of experiences over time. So I think one big influential factor was just how my upbringing went about. So my family's always been pretty big on pets. We've had a great variety and a strange variety. So ranging from dogs to prairie dogs. What? Um, prairie dogs? Prairie dogs. Oh my yeah. gosh, more childhood memories. That's what I did my like animal report on in the first really? grade. Prairie dogs. <laughs> They're super cute. Love them lots. This is before the monkeypox outbreak. So all good. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so kind of grew up surrounded by animals and then spent a lot of time outdoors with my grandparents, you know, fishing with my papa, collecting arrowheads and rocks and insects and everything you can imagine. Um, and so my grandfather in particular is just an amazing outdoorsman and I'm pretty sure you could drop him in any wilderness in the world and he would be fine forever. Um, and so as a kid, he taught me a lot about nature, um, some practical things like what plants are edible and where mosses grow and how to track deer, but also kind of more like ideological things like why is the forest important and why should people respect nature, respect animals. Um, and so kind of having those conversations early on, I think, shaped how I viewed the world a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, you know, shout out to the parents for always being super supportive and allowing for those budding passions to grow. Um, my mom still talks about how difficult it was to find a Steve Irwin Halloween costume. He was the crocodile hunter, if you recall. Of course. I was obsessed. Uh, apparently finding one in the size for a third grade girl was difficult, but she did it. Who would have thought? So, who would have thought they existed at some point in time? I had the little like hiking boots and khaki shorts and everything. Had a little fake crocodile with me. Oh my gosh, it was uh, exactly. Um, I did try to talk with an Australian accent. That didn't go over as well. <laughs> Effort. Um, but yeah, and then I think kind of on a deeper note, um, I think my perception of conservation, my interest in conservation grew with my faith um, because I think that kind of childlike wonder you have for God's creation just never really left as I got older. And so I kind of just over time grew more and more passionate about protecting yeah. his handiwork and kind of being a good steward of the resources that we've been gifted and teaching others about the importance of being good stewards and how to be good stewards. And so that just kind of grew from there. And yeah, here we are. <laughs> Oh, that gets me so fired up. I love that vision that you have. Um, and I always kind of fall back on this Timothy Keller quote of, it's from every good endeavor. Every Christian he proposed should see the connection between their work and how it contributes to the kingdom of God. And that is just so inspiring to see that the vision and connection you have to how your work contributes. Uh, so moving on to your educational path, what degrees, plural, did you get? And tell me a little bit about your post-grad career progression as well up to present day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I attended Texas A&M University, whoop, um, and got my bachelor's in wildlife and fishery sciences and a minor in English. Um, and I did a lot of exploring in college as far as kind of what career types were available um, for this field. And so I spent a summer in government working for the Environmental Protection Agency and their Wetlands Protection Division. I spent another summer at the Little Rock Zoo working in education outreach and animal care, um, and then spent a lot of time working in a variety of different labs on campus um, with different research topics. Um, fun fact, I actually published a couple of papers in undergrad with the most interesting one being at least in my opinion, um, a look at how anthropomorphism in literature impacts our perceptions of animals in real life, um, specifically looking at like Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Uh, so that was how I claimed I used my English minor and why it was worth the Tolkien and C.S. Lewis classes that I took. <laughs> oh, that thoroughly justified. Thoroughly. That's what I thought. That's how I at least uh, described it to my parents. So... <laughs> They're like, we, we get it. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is just so interesting um, that in, yeah, I think it was last week's batch of the job library episodes. Um, 
another friend came on, Jenna Floyd, who also was a wildlife and fishery sciences major. Oh, did I say that correctly? Yeah. I hope I did. Okay. And her, I bring this up because to me, it's fascinating that as a kid, when we're all thinking, what do you want to be? What do I want to be? Mm-hmm. Um, you both had this similar care for nature animals and even a common theme of conservation and stewardship of those things but one path jenna's led to um, more directly caring for animals hands-on in an aquarium as an aquarist and then your path led to conservation um, in this really high level uh seemingly really data management heavy if you if it's Uh, fair to describe it that way. Um, What is your stance on that of how I'm sure the major that you were both in gave you exposure to a lot of different ways you could answer that question. How do I fulfill my uh, kind of pull to care for um, creation? Um, And how I don't know how you kind of decided this one way. Maybe I'm curious if you considered any other paths or ways that you might have had other careers uh, to a similar end. Oh, absolutely. Um, I've gone through everything from being a zookeeper to being a veterinarian to being, you know, full on field researcher or professor or anything that's plausible in the realm of uh, conservation I've thought of and considered to pursue, um, which is what I love about the field because there really is just such a variety of options um, and you really do have a freedom to just whatever it is that you love, no matter how general or how specific, there is a place for you, which is really great. Um, And so, and if there isn't one already in existence, you have full freedom to make one. What? Which is just really cool because I mean, if you have a desire to conserve this specific species, or if you're really interested in this behavioral aspect, or you want to answer this ambiguous question, go get funding and do it, you know? And that's just really cool because I don't know that every career path has that flexibility, but it's really just a bunch of people that are kind of nerdy and just really passionate and you can find other people that think like you or think differently but are on board with how you think and it's a really neat neat community to be a part of and the degree path at AM is also really unique in that it offers a lot of kind of subspecialties within the program itself mm-hmm. so my specialty was in conservation but they oh. also had more management focused um pathways or behavioral pathways. I have another friend who is in the same major who did animal behavior and psychology as a mix because she was just really interested in how like, you know, why animals behave the way that they do and what changes that behavior, what factors play into that. And Mm -hmm. so there's just a lot of flexibility to pursue what it is that you're interested in. And that's reflected in the student organizations as well. You know, I was involved in Society for Conservation Biology, but there's also the Wildlife Society and the American Fishery Society and the Aggie Behavioral Network and just the list goes on and on and on. And again, if there's not something in existence, you make it and there's full freedom to do that. So yeah, that I can't emphasize how special that is seeing that this is a career field in which it seems like it's thoroughly encouraged and completely possible to have a very passion-filled direction. Um, And it might even be more productive to really consider what am I super passionate about? And then you're actually emboldened to go build your uh, line of work around that. That's fascinating seeing that a lot of, And I wonder if that gave you more freedom on the front end to just say, why don't I go into this career path and explore and see how things develop um, versus how it kind of seems like a different attitude for many other career paths where you have to feel so certain going in um, and know what you want and who you are and all this stuff, because after that, you're going to be on a track Mm -hmm. and maybe people don't really want to hear what you're passionate about. (laughs) 
Yeah, absolutely. It definitely encourages that kind of exploration, um, which is really fantastic because as I mentioned, I did a variety of different uh, internships and jobs to kind of get a feel for what it is that I like and found a lot of things that I liked and a lot of things that I didn't like. And um, there, I kind of went into college feeling like I needed to have a step-by-step -step, uh, guideline of how you, know, you get from point A to point B. Um, and there is some guidance in that, you know, professors are always willing to talk you through um, kind of how to reach your goals, but there isn't really a, you know, you follow this exact path. Everyone's path looks a little different. And I think that's super cool. And it's really interesting being able to kind of look back to over a career, um, as short as mine is thus far, but even being able to see how everything connects, you know, and that I, in college worked for two different labs on campus, uh, one being the small mammal lab with uh, Dr. Thomas Locker looking at, again, the IUCN, this is my actual foot in the door for my current job, is I got on board with the IUCN small mammal specialist team and started red listing for small mammals in the Americas as an undergrad. And at the same time, I was working on stable isotope stuff in a fisheries lab on the other side of campus and just kind of figuring out what it is that I like and I didn't get involved in that lab to do stable isotope work. I got involved because I wanted some lab experience and the graduate student was really nice and it seemed like a fun adventure at the time and then I ended up doing my graduate degree in stable isotope ecology but not with freshwater fish, but with marine fish. And now I do IUCN stuff for amphibians. And it's just kind of all these little connections of I never thought that stable isotopes were going to be something I was interested in until I suddenly had two years of experience with it and was being recruited for a graduate program. For, you know, so. Funny how life turns out that way. Funny uh, how life turns out. Also, what is a stable isotope? <laughs> SOS. <laughs> no, it is not uh, not common terminology. So I okay, cool. am guilty of some jargon bad. there. <laughs> I apologize. Um, but essentially, it's just looking at how different. So I look at carbon 13 and nitrogen 15 specifically, and that just has to do with the molecular makeup. Um, and so you can use different signatures of these different isotopes. Mm -hmm to learn different things. And so, for example, carbon can tell you about the food web. And so in marine systems, some of the stuff that I did with my work in graduate school was if I had a certain signature from carbon, or if I had a certain amount of carbon-13 or certain signature showing, then it meant that I had a more phytoplankton-based food web. And that would then mean that the water was fairly clear, fairly nutrient free because sunlight was able to penetrate enough that phytoplankton could do what phytoplankton do, photosynthesize. Um, but if I had a different signature, then it was telling me that my food web was actually based on algae, which means that it's probably murkier, there are probably more nutrients in the water making it a little bit more eutrophic and sunlight's not able to penetrate. And so it's just kind of, it just tells you interesting things about the environment. So <laughs> wow. that's a little nerdy tangent. Oh, I, I was eating it up. Um, uh, just don't mind me. I'm like a simple business person over here. That I'm like, well, you talk numbers, but like, don't whip out the periodic table at me, please. But it's fine. Uh, this is so fascinating though. Um, so what did you... Well, where did you go for your graduate degree? And also I'm curious, is that something that's kind of required? Yeah, good question. So for the first part, I went straight from undergrad into graduate school and I attended Columbia University in New York City and got my master's in ecology, evolution, and conservation biology, which is an absolute mouthful to say. Um, <laughs> but that was the degree plan. I obviously focused more on that kind of conservation biology end um, and did my master's thesis on small-scale fisheries in Fiji and looking at how human activities were impacting critical coastal ecosystems and therefore those uh, artisanal fisheries in the area. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what I did for graduate work. Um, as far as the if you need it, it really truly depends 
on the type of work you want to do. So for a pathway into academia, if you're looking to be a professor where you do some amount of teaching and some amount of research, then you pretty much have to get a PhD because the route that you would take is PhD, postdoc, tenure track, hopefully somewhere. Um, if you're not looking to go into academia, if you're doing something more in the nonprofit realm like I do or government, private, um, any of those things, then it, it really depends more on what type of work you want to do, what type of projects you want to be involved and what degree of leadership you want. So if a nonprofit, a PhD in general would be recommended if you're looking at upper level management or leadership positions. But if you don't want to be director of a program, if you want to be a project manager or a data analyst or program officer, then you're fine with a master's um, or even a bachelor's, depending on where you are. So it really just depends. What are some of the different specialties uh, someone might start considering they might go into in wildlife conservation? Yeah. So as we've talked about um, already, it really is just so flexible. Um, there's just everything under the sun you could possibly be interested in um, or want to get involved in. But I would say a kind of a, a general breakdown of the categories of careers you might pursue mm -hmm. might be government, um, which would consist of, you know, Environmental Protection Agency, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, Forest Service, uh, or any similar state agency. Um, private, you, maybe ranch management, uh, environmental consulting, that sort of thing. Um, academic or academia, which would be kind of that professor track that we talked about earlier, or nonprofit, um, which is really a mix of all things. Um, and the type of work is really going to depend on the organization that you're involved with, but usually has a focus on on the ground conservation work, um, developing partnerships, leading coalitions um, with some mix of research and educational outreach kind of thrown in. Mm. What are some common misconceptions about working in wildlife conservation? Maybe this is fun. I, this question brings to mind that cartoon that went around for a while of the whole, you know, what other people think I do, what I yes. think I do, and what I actually do. Yes. Um, which I think that's perfect for wildlife conservation. So in that uh, what other people think I do column, I see a lot of pictures of people snuggling tigers or cuddled up with crocodiles or some really close encounter with some wild animal. <laughs> uh, and then in the what I think I do, you know, it's like you've got the world on your shoulders and you're single-handedly saving the planet. And then it's the I way mean, I mean, that's what do. I think you do. Oh, yes, of course. Clearly. <laughs> that's what I think I do, too. <laughs> um, but then that's what we all aspire to do. Hmm. Um, and then the, you know, what I actually do is staring at a computer screen, looking obviously frustrated because GIS or R or something isn't running the way that I want it to run. Um, but yes, I think an easy misconception is that wildlife conservationists snuggle wild animals all the time, which hmm. is not true. In fact, we usually strongly advise against that. Hmm. Um, that whole national park motto of, leave nothing but footprints, take nothing but pictures, abide by that. Yes, um, that's <laughs> super ironic. <laughs> yeah, like, we're actually the people telling you to cut that out. Like, yeah. don't get too close to the sea turtle. That always drives me nuts. Like, you're supposed yes. to stay away from them. Um, exactly. Anyway. So that, that's probably an easy one. Um, I think another common one is that in order to effectively do conservation, you have to live in a remote jungle somewhere, um, which is obviously not true, given that I'm speaking to you from Houston, <laughs> Texas. Um, and, you know, a lot of people do conservation from a variety of different places. And in every country, there are endangered species. I mean, we've got a whole lot of conservation issues right here in the good old US that we can focus on. So there's definitely something you can do wherever you are. Um, so I think that's that's another easy one. And then I think something that is maybe less obvious, but to some extent fairly pervasive is if I asked you to close your eyes and picture a wildlife conservationist or what you think a wildlife conservationist look, looks like, and you didn't know one because you might just envision me, 
Um, but if you weren't personally acquainted, then a lot of people would have the image of a white male come to mind. And this isn't not to say that people actively think you must be male and you must be white to be in conservation, but that is kind of this underlying bias that can sometimes be problematic. And so that can stem from a variety of different factors. Um, but the truth of it is, you know, conservation is very diverse and it's very important that it's very diverse. You know, we need diverse yeah. voices and perspectives to come up with global solutions. You know, everyone needs, needs to have a seat at the table. And so while it is true that women have to be more safety conscious in the field as a general rule than men do, and that there is the very real possibility that you're out birding and you're considered to be a threat um, if you're a person of color, you know, that outdoor spaces might not be as welcome for you and that it is more difficult to conduct field work in certain instances. Those things do happen. Those are very real obstacles, but they aren't prohibitive. You know, there are people doing conservation that look like you and um, have similar backgrounds. It is a very diverse space. It's very good that it is a diverse space. We want it to be that way. Yes. So if you don't feel like you fit the criteria of the image in your mind, then change the image because yes. you absolutely are welcome. That's so powerful. Actually, it's funny, the image that came to my mind was just Dr. Jane Goodall. Yes. Is that pretty common? It oh. is, absolutely. I mean, that's who comes to my mind too, um, which I love because she's incredible, um, absolutely one of my role models. But it is interesting if you think about it, of, so Dr. Jane Goodall is going to come to mind. If I asked you to come up with another female conservationist, who would you say? I'm out. Exactly. Wait, no, no. So, can I say Steve Irwin's wife, which I'm the worst for saying <laughs> Steve Irwin's wife. I'm a part of the problem. I don't remember her name. Michelle? Terry Irwin. Go oh, Terry. Terry Go Irwin, Terry. Bendy Irwin, rocking the female yes. conservationist. Um, yeah, I mean, Sylvia Earle is another one of my role models, but it is one of those things If I knew Jane Goodall when I was a kid. I knew Steve Irwin when I was a kid. I didn't know Sylvia Earle until I was an adult. And Sylvia Earle is a rock star. If you've ever seen, I think it's Blue Planet yeah. um, on Netflix. That's all her. It's incredible. Or Mission Blue. I'm terrible now because I'm forgetting <laughs> the exact name of her documentary. Not but as bad as Steve good. Irwin's wife. That was pretty bad. <laughs> but she's an absolute pioneer in the field of marine biology. Um, and just a total rock star. And um, but it isn't something that's super common. And so it is kind of one of those, if, if I asked you to name a conservationist that was a person of color, you know, you might not have an immediate name come to mind, but they're there. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of it is just an issue that as a society and as a field, we need to be better about making them more prominent. And so it's not yeah. a difficulty to have them come to mind that you don't get that kind of uh, stereotypical image in your brain. But mm -hmm as we work on that, you know, trying to bring people into the field, if you feel like you don't fit into the stereotype, don't worry, because no one really fits a stereotype, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I just so. so appreciate that you brought this asp aspect to the conversation, because I realize it's so applicable for everything in mm -hmm. uh, every uh, job that I'm trying to feature via this project, even as simple as nursing. Uh, there's such a stigma against male nurses, mm -hmm. um, but there is such a call that is just as valid for a woman to feel, I man, I just really feel like I've always wanted to be a nurse, as when a man feels that same thing. Such a, it, like, yeah. there doesn't need to be a gender or any other kind of stereotype about it. Hey there, if you're listening to this episode right now, it's probably because you're somewhere on the range of mildly curious to high-key desperate to find a career path that will be an amazing, rewarding, and exciting fit for you. If indeed you are still holding out hope that that's even possible, which I can assure you is completely possible as I've given dozens of Christians, one, a reformed view of work from mundane responsibility to actually the joyful gift that it is, two, help identifying their unique calling, and three, the help they need to practically land the job that's aligned with it. 
If it sounds like a dream to have a tried and true career coach come alongside you to help you confidently discern which career path you're called to pursue amidst the infinite sea of options that are so overwhelming, as well as help you nail all the practicals like networking, resumes, interviews, and negotiations to save you a load of time, stress, and dead-end job applications that are just seemingly such a common experience. They don't have to be. If any of that sounds extremely exciting, then I want to invite you to apply for my deep dive career coaching experience. Go to my website, kelseykemp.com slash coaching to learn more and book a free 30 minute consultation with me this week to objectively evaluate if this opportunity is the perfect fit to help you work through whatever might be holding you back so you could fulfill the vision and hopes you have for your career. I want to let you know I only work with people who are ready to go deep, do the work, and actually make a change once the path is made clear to them. So if that sounds like you, and if you're serious, and if you're ready to accelerate your path to building a meaningful and impactful career aligned with who God uniquely made you to be and what he put on your heart to do, then go to kelseykemp.com coaching to book a free consultation with me this week and learn more. Okay, now back to the episode. So moving on, I'm kind of curious to, well, actually, this is always one of my favorites, is to hear about your um, day in the life. Like when do you, uh, on a general kind of basis, start work, end work, your hours, and what are your tasks uh, that you spend most of your time doing? Absolutely. So I feel like a broken record player at this point, but it's very variable. (laughs) (laughs) But my general, I I tend to have kind of two breakdowns of a day in the life. And so one is when we are not in workshop, it's just, you know, average day. Um, And so that tends to be a lot of email um, because our project is international. And so you're, you're trying to wrangle a whole lot of communications and compile a whole bunch of information. Um, and time zones are not always your friend. And so I just wrapped up finalizing a batch of Sri Lankan assessments. And it pretty much works that I send an email when I get off work and I look at it again the next morning when I come back to work because they're <laughs> doing it during my night. Um, and so that's always fun, especially with COVID now. And so we can't really have in-person assessments. And so a lot of our workshops were actually planned to be in Asia for this upcoming year, and we can't do those. And so they're going virtual, which is a whole rodeo in itself. Um, But that means that I'm not as hands-on in the Asian workshops as I was going to be because it's a really unfortunate time zone for me. So we're kind of having our colleagues in the UK take the reins on that one a little bit more. Um, I'm glad that they can instead of you suffering through a middle of the night call. Very thankful for them. But yeah, so a lot of it has to do with email. And then um, it depends what part of an assessment I'm working on. But a lot of the day is spent doing literature searches. So, you know, looking through Google Scholar, looking through ResearchGate, looking through um, the, you know, insane amount of papers that our colleagues send us um, and kind of siphoning out the important information um, and then going through our database and making sure that everything that's relevant gets put in there um, making sure that we have really accurate maps or as accurate as they can be so we can get a good feel for really how widely distributed a species is uh, what the threats are that it's facing if it's You know, we sometimes have cases where there are really severe threats, but they're under a thousand meters in elevation. And so is the species in that, in that area, or are they above, are they getting some sort of protection? Are they in protected areas or are they, you know, completely uh, out (laughs) for, uh, for the taking? So are they used, you know, are they taken for pets or for food? And so trying to get a good feel for the status of the species, putting it into this database, checking with uh, experts on the ground to see if there's, you know, anything that we're missing. It's very much like putting together a puzzle and trying to find all of the pieces so that it uh, fits together well and gives us a really solid um, category, something we can feel really confident in, whether we're saying that it's least concerned, don't worry about it, it's fine, uh, which is not necessarily what all least concerned species mean, um, or is it, you know, 
critically endangered and danger to something. If I'm saying a species is critically endangered, I want to have all the information that I possibly can in that assessment. Mm -hmm. And if I'm taking it down from critically endangered, if I'm saying it's downlisted to endangered because we're finding it to be more widespread than we originally thought, I absolutely want to be sure that -hmm. that is in fact the case before I downlist a species because these categories are utilized worldwide for conservation decision making, for funding Mm -hmm. decisions, prioritization. And so it's really important that we have accurate information. So really a lot of my day is spent data mining, um, (laughs) essentially. (laughs) Um, And then on the other side of things, when we have a workshop day, and to give more context for that, we do a lot of our data collection Um, through in-person workshops in country. And so I am not an expert in amphibians. I will very willingly say that, Um, but I am an expert in the red listing process. And so Mm -hmm. I know how to take the information I'm given, hold it up against these criteria, apply the different criteria as needed and give an accurate um, assessment that will hold water. And so what we do is we try to get people together that are actually on the ground, that are seeing this species or aren't seeing this species, that have the population data, that have been studying this thing for 20 years, and they're telling us, hey, we haven't seen it in a long time, we're worried, or like, I can't take a step outside without stepping on it, it's fine. (laughs) And so um, we host these workshops, they're usually about a week long, we bring in somewhere between 10 to 30 experts and just have them all sit in a room and prepare for several long days of talking about species. Wow. It's a lot of frogs and salamanders and uh, (laughs) aliens for a while, but it's a lot of fun. Um, We usually make really great relationships with the experts um, because they're great people. They always have amazing stories to tell from their field days. I'm sure. It's incredible. Um, and they're just amazing people. So on a workshop day, it's just constant go, 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 trying to get through each assessment, but a lot of back and forth with experts of me saying, you know, like, is this, is the population declining? Yes or no? Okay. Why? What are the threats? Where are the threats? How severe are the threats? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what do your hours typically look like when you're not on a workshop week or whatnot? And then when you are traveling, how much do you typically travel? Yeah, so my hours are actually really nice, which we can shout out to Global Wildlife Conservation for that. Um, They do a really impressive job, in my opinion, of making sure that they balance out the importance of the work and the urgency of the work that we're doing with our emotional and physical well-being. Um, And so I work 9 to 5.30 or so, unusual day. Those are the hours I'm supposed to work. Um, and it's some, there's some flexibility in that every now and then I have to ha- hop on a call with someone across the world at, you know, six or seven. And, but on those days, they're very adamant that I need to take the day off, like, uh, cut off early. Mm-hmm. And so I don't always do that because there's a lot of work to do. Um, but it is really nice that they have that kind of, um, atmosphere mm-hmm. in place and so they're very big on you know our directors that have kids are like you know I get off work at six on Friday I'm going to respond to email at nine on Monday mm-hmm. I might respond to you between then if I happen to check but like don't expect it yeah uh, oh that's awesome that's a good tone yeah so that's just really nice because they're very big and conservation it's a great field and everyone's super passionate, but what you sometimes get with that is because everyone really cares about what they're doing, that they're going to work on it constantly because the work yeah. is never done, but that's probably the work is never done. So it's very easily to burn out. And GWC has really placed an importance on the, we want you here long-term. We want you to do this work for a while. We want it to be done well. So please don't burn yourself out in six months and then be useless to us. Mm. Um, but so that's a long tangent on nine to five thirty of my typical work hours. I usually push it to like six or seven just to get a couple more species in. Uh, <laughs> so passionate. Yes. There's lots of things to do. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of the typical hours of the day workshop. It's just, you know, a whole other thing, but that's more rare. Um, and then as far as travel, that also varies. Um, 
pre-COVID, I was supposed to be, I was in Sri Lanka in, well, I was in Belize in February, Sri Lanka at the end of February, was supposed to be in Singapore in May, and then was supposed to be in India in July. Uh, two of those clearly did not happen and will not happen. Um, but that was kind of my travel schedule for a bit. Um, but it kind of ebbs and flows depending on what our workshops look like. So last year, I really only traveled, uh, I think I went to BC, Mexico, and Guatemala, and that was kind of it. So it's still you know. so interesting and exotic at times for sure. Uh, so what do you enjoy the most about your job and what's a little less glamorous about it? Yeah. So, I mean, I enjoy a lot of things about my job. I do really like the travel aspect just because it's really fun to get to meet these people in person because a lot of times we've been communicating via email for months and so you get to see their face and be like, ah, yes, hi, <laughs> which is just really rewarding. Um, and then there's several times where these people, I mean, they're the experts. And so a lot of times I've read their papers, sometimes even before being in this job and you're like I recognize your name you wrote that paper on you know such and such it was incredible and it's kind of like meeting a hero kind of thing that's which is so really cool. fun so that's just wonderful conservationists as a group are just really fantastic herpetologists as a group are really interesting and so <laughs> that got demoted <laughs> to interesting <laughs> <laughs> they're also wonderful people um, okay. the stories are just wild um I think, I don't think we got through either the Guatemala or the Mexico workshop without somebody telling a kidnapping story. Um, so there's just, because, I mean, clearly that's a part of herpetology, right? No, that is not. It I happens. Not, that was a joke. You do not have to get kidnapped to be a herpetologist. That is not okay, take away. Um, but yes, so they just have these like wild circumstances where just crazy things happen. Um, and so hearing all the stories in person and getting to really get up close with these people and sometimes actually get to see some of the species that we've been studying oh. is really, really fantastic. Um, and then just the general feeling that like what you do makes a difference. Mm -hmm. um, and it just, it has that rewarding aspect to it of the, you know, kind of knowledge that this information is being utilized for conservation decision-making. It's being utilized for, um, you know, protected areas, where they're going to go, how they're going to be monitored, uh, what species get funding. And so you just put a lot of care into it because it has an important outcome. Um, and so that's really cool. And um, probably the best, the best part is just feeling like you get to make a kind of a measurable difference and something is a little bit better because you put some work in, mm -hmm. which is nice. Um, as far as the less glamorous aspect, not so much in this job, but throughout my career, I have had to pick up a lot of different types of poo. No. So, uh, <laughs> one's actually on live television, so. Wait, what? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Do tell. <laughs> I was, this was during my stint at the Little Rock Zoo, and we had taken an education animal, our Moluccan cockatoo, to the local news station to do a segment on an educational program that the zoo was running that month. And she uh, had a bit of an accident on commercial break and me being the intern that I am or was, it was my job to clean it up. And the news anchor thought it was so hilarious that the intern was having to clean up poo. That was just, you know, the epitome of intern work that he kept me there until they came back and then like had the camera pan in and like zoom in close on me. And it's like, hey, Lauren, she's from Texas, say hi. <laughs> So I had my parents, my grandparents all text me like, we just saw you on TV. <laughs> like, cool. Thanks. Oh my gosh. I really hope that's in some like fail compilation on YouTube. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> somewhere. Is. I definitely know my parents have it just tucked away for, <laughs> you know, the perfect moment. But oh gosh, that's so funny. Literally on my hands and knees, like scrubbing poo off the floor. So that, yeah. <laughs> that was probably the low point. Uh, <laughs> sounds like it but other than that the less glamorous um at the current job is probably just the amount of time that i spend yelling at my computer because gis is stuck or the shapefile isn't working the way that i need it to work thing of that nature so tech but, issues gotta hate them yeah it's a very powerful 
software. It does a lot of great things. Love GIS, but there are days that I don't love GIS. So <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. Sounds so frustrating. Um, what type of person? Well, actually, hmm. Backup. I would love to ask kind of this other question that keeps on coming up in my head, which is something. Um, it's a struggle I see a lot in the clients that come to me for career coaching um, is they don't feel satisfied for a variety of reasons, but one of them is they want to have this sense of impact in their career and in their work, and they want to see what it's really doing and how it's making a difference, um, but they feel far removed from it because, well, a common example is they'll say, well, I'm really just behind my computer. And I think the person being affected by this is like 17 steps down the line or is halfway across the world or it's 20 years from now, hopefully, maybe not even for sure. Um, and so the common theme I see there is just like proximity to impact, um, not being where they would want it. Um, and what I keep hearing from you is I just... Um, thinking about your day-to-day -day and how data-heavy it seems and coordination, communication, um, gathering, researching, all of these things. Um, and you do seem to have these points throughout the year where you travel and you get to put a name to a face and you might even get to see the species. But how have you thought about that much or struggled with it or felt perfectly fulfilled and fine in knowing, I, I guess, in how close you are to your impact? Or have you had moments where you're like, I am like behind a computer maybe more than I would have hoped? Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like I've kind of been on that pendulum uh, <laughs> a lot at various points. And I actually have a little sign on my desk specifically for those days that just says remember why you started mm -hmm. and that's kind of my go-to on those days when I feel like I'm just behind my computer I really thought you know when I went into conservation I wanted to be in the field and doing the data collection myself and you know just feel a little bit more active and involved um but it's important at, at those points for me to kind of take a step back and try to go through why what I'm doing matters. And so, you know, looking yeah. through the various points, big and small, of why the work that I do today is important. Um, and yeah. so that varies from, you know, how I mentioned trying to think about the assessment that I am writing is getting published. And this is what researchers, this is what government officials, this is what the general public is going to see when they look for the species on the IUCN Red List website. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that it's good because it needs to have all the information that I want conveyed to those people. Um, and so then you kind of get this idea of, well, so then it's important for conservation decision making and funding and those things that I've mentioned, but it's also important for public education and for people that just have a general curiosity about amphibians and mm -hmm. what the amphibian in their backyard is and what its threats are and that sort of thing. So making sure that each one is dealt with in a way that conveys its importance. Mm -hmm. um, and then kind of also thinking about the little things that I might do throughout the day that might seem little, but down the road could be important. You know, making sure yeah. that someone gets credit for this point locality or for this piece of information. You know, maybe they're a younger person in the field or they're they're just not as prominent in the literature, but if it's their data, then they get credit for it. Yeah. Um, we just had a fun little tidbit of that. We had a, our workshop in Sri Lanka. And while we were there, one of the researchers brought his family in and one of his little boys, I was asking for locality information about this particular species and, you know, data points and everything like that. And his little boy runs up and hands me a piece of paper with the like name of a place where it oh. is. And, you know, one of the other researchers leans over and smiles and he's like, that's already, it's included in the text that you have in the assessment. Like you don't have to add it in. It's covered. I'm like, I got this. And I, there's really a sentence where it's like, this species is found throughout Southwestern Sri Lanka comma 
including this particular location. <laughs> and then I have him cited, um, which is just a really fun aspect of the job. It's like, I cited a nine-year-old and like, that's, <laughs> it's fun for me because it's adorable and I love it. Um, but it's also fun for him because if he goes on the website, his name is there, you know, and like, I don't know, hopefully that inspires him to keep looking for frogs in Sri Lanka and, you know, get more information on their conservation and everything like that. So just like those little small opportunities that present themselves are also really rewarding in the long run. And so just kind of being able to keep an eye out for those things. And even when I feel removed, being like, well, you know what, like at least I can make sure that this data is handled properly, that these people are cited well, that, you know, everyone that I'm collaborating with is treated with kindness and is appropriately thanked for their involvement and knows that this is really important and that I really appreciate them sharing their data. Because also asking people to share data in this field is a big ask for some people, you know, like it's your life's work. And I'm like, hey, can you pass that along to me so that I can put it up and of course you know they're getting credit and we're not putting in specific details but still they've kind of got to trust us with this information and so conveying like hey we know it's a big ask and we really appreciate your willingness to do this for the, spe the good of the species um yeah. so I think that kind of is how I try to put in perspective the I'm behind a computer and sometimes it's boring mm -hmm. but like what I'm doing matters to someone. If nothing else, it matters to me. You know, I'm gonna do a good job at what I do. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just, you know, I write sentences really well. <laughs> like it, they're very easy to understand. It's good for public consumption and isn't too jargony for science. Like that can be my focus as long as it's done well. So. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, that's so special. And it sounds like you just as anyone has to have to remind yourself of the purpose the original mm -hmm. intent you have to take moments of thoughtfulness to remember why your work matters no matter how inspiring um someone's work looks like on the outside mm -hmm. we all have to have those moments of reflection to remember um but it also seems like from what i'm hearing from you there is this um talent that you have and you have this analytical brilliant mind and you it correct me if I'm wrong but it sounds like you do enjoy the data crunching aspect of things would yeah. you say so yeah and Absolutely. so I think that's another aspect to mention that it's not just about um am I working towards an inspiring mission too and do I feel like I'm close enough and see the evidence of that the, or the fruits of that mission enough? But three, do I feel like the tasks I have to do on a daily basis to contribute to this work, touch on my talents or utilize my talents and touch on something I'm actually interested in? And it seems like you found the magic sensei combo of the three of those, um, which I just, it always brings me such joy to see an example like yours. Um, so what type of person do you think would be a great fit for a career in conservation? Yeah, well, so as a quick kind of like comment back to our previous point real fast, I also think it's good to put in perspective a career. So I really enjoy this data crunching and gathering of information for amphibians and everything. That doesn't mean I have to do it for the rest of my career. Yeah. This is a great place. I am learning a lot. I really enjoy it. And at some point I can move on to something that maybe has more of those aspects that I really like, but right now I'm happy. Mm -hmm. And thinking about on those days where it's harder to see that impact, thinking about, you know, what it is that I'm looking for and why, you know, is it that I want to be doing something really exciting? Well, why? Is it because I just want to tell my friends I'm doing something exciting or I want to feel important? Like, is it a pride yeah. issue or is it like, you know, I just don't enjoy what I'm doing? If it's, I don't actually enjoy the task, well, that's something to look at. But if it's just me feeling like I need to be more important, I'm doing my part for conservation. You know, I am my cog in the wheel and like doing what I can to, you know, push the big project down the road. And so as long as my talents are being utilized in a way that is helpful, then I'm okay with that. 
Um, oh my goodness. But. So well said, Lauren. That is just the best perspective to bring into this because I will be real honest. I am one of those people that's like, I, I, I think one of, it's a, a sin struggle, I would say, quite honestly, to get caught yeah. up in this savior complex um, when it is, even though we hate the cog in the machine model, like that's what people would use in a sentence to complain about their job, <laughs> um, there is a healthy uh, sense to grasp onto. I just need to humbly do my part. And for most days, that is more than enough. That is okay. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's, that. like I said, why I have the remember why you started. If, if it's going towards that ultimate goal and it is pushing forward, you know, conservation as a mission, then we're good. So, um, but yeah, so that was kind of my add-on um, to answer your question about what kind of person is good for a conservation job. Yeah. I honestly would say anyone that has a degree of passion for conservation. Um, I'd say that you have to have passion because it is hard work and it's never ending work. As we've mentioned, you know, there's always something else that can be done. There's always another problem that can be solved. And sometimes that can be disheartening, um, especially when, you know, you look around and there are people that don't believe in climate change or, uh -huh. that, <laughs> or you know, another or... podcast of you roasting that, please? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That'll just be, you know, play soapbox stand up. <laughs> uh, but no, but there is, you know, that is a genuine issue of you look around, you're like, I'm working so hard on this thing and people aren't just ignoring it. They're actively working against me, you know, or plastic pollution or, you know, uh, carbon emissions or uh, species conservation, even, you know, people not valuing a species because it's not cute. And you're like, well, it doesn't really matter if it's cute. It's important for the ecosystem because it does this really important thing. Yeah. And you will notice when it's gone kind of idea. Um, so that is just hard sometimes, you know, when you're looking around and you're seeing things that you really care about having their budget slashed and people just not placing mm. importance on research. And um, so it's not always easy. But if you really care about it, then you, you're able to push through those things. You're able to have some degree of, you know, conservation optimism and just always working towards a better tomorrow. Even if you feel like it's just you or just you and the people that you're working with, like at least someone is doing something. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, so I would say that's really all you need because kind of touching back on the, what types of careers are there in conservation? I do a very fairly scientific technical type job, but my organization has social media specialists we have media uh, relations people, we have COOs and accountants and, you know, all of these other things that are just as important and to the overall mission that are, you know, these people are conservationists themselves. They're just using the skill set that they have. And so my skill set is in this particular uh, wheelhouse. You know, I, I do more the scientific technical thing but the person who has the accountant skill set is still working towards conservation. They're keeping, you know, the trains running on time and making sure that everything gets done the way that it needs to be. And so you have your political activists, your uh, wildlife photographers, your uh, conservation journalists, like all these people that have, you know, very data-minded wirings or very artistic brains or just whatever skill set you have you can use it for conservation if that's your cause, if that's what you care about. So there really isn't a like, you have to be this way or you have to have this skill to succeed in conservation. You just have to want to succeed in conservation, in my opinion. Oh my gosh, I am so inspired. Oh, that's so cool. Everyone can have their place um, if this is in this field, if that's your passion. Um, so what would you suggest are some first steps to consider if someone wants to get their foot in the door? Yeah, I mean, I think the best way to, to get that foot in the door is honestly just to reach out to people that are doing it um, and that are doing it, if you can find it, in the way that you want to do it. Um, so, I mean, my freshman year of college, I found a professor and was like, I want to do what you do. 
turns out I don't want to do exactly what he did, but <laughs> like, that was my goal at the time and it helped to shape what my goals are now. And so I went up to class or went up to him after class and asked to join his lab. Now, granted, I did have my pants on inside out at the time, <laughs> but he managed to look past that and agree <laughs> to let me in. Uh, God is good, yeah. am I right? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Moments so. of grace upon grace. <laughs> but yeah, and so, and he's been one of my biggest supporters in my career. You know, this is uh, Dr. Locker, who I mentioned earlier, let me come into his lab as a freshman, gave me writing assignments, let me in. I did not actually volunteer for the Red Listing Project. He called me and said, show up on Monday at like three because you're doing this. And I said, okay. Wow. Um, and like, you know, because of him and his PhD student, I got this connection with GWC. And now I have red listing experience and a connection with GWC. So when they were looking for an amphibian red lister, they called me. And it's just a, you know, it's networking, right? Um, and like I said, the field is full of passionate people. And so in my experience, you don't really have to ask much for someone in conservation to freely tell you why they love what they do and what it is they do and all the nitty-gritty nitty -gritty details of exactly what they do. There is information overload is very easily available. That's um, so awesome. Wow. And in your example, it seems like it was so pivotal, quite technically, in your career progression to have this professor in your corner. Um, mm -hmm. And I think anyone obviously would agree, like, oh, wow, it's really going to help me to, quote, network and get someone in my corner. But you didn't have that happen because you go up to him and say, can you help me out? You got that because you were so eager to learn from him and full of admiration. And I think that's just a huge shift that I hope more people would experience or um, kind of change their mind about is that networking isn't some gross thing where you're just trying to get things from people. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, it could be this amazing thing that enriches your life so much because you're just genuinely connecting, learning, appreciating, and all of these things. Just having a, almost... Um, like a friend-like yet professional interaction. Um, and those are the kind of connections where over time you are planting seeds, then you have someone who puts your name in a stack of resumes or, you know, uh, recommends you for something or, you know, it's just so obvious in your story that that was really huge for you. So I love that example. Really appreciate it. Um, fun bonus question. Where do you see yourself in 15 or 20 years? Oh, what a fun question that as usual, I have no real answer. To. <laughs> I'm That's always fair. very bad. I feel like so in 10 years, like, hmm. Um, but in general, I think that I have found a place that I really enjoy in the nonprofit realm. Uh, I love the, you know, atmosphere. I love the people. The people at GWC are just incredible, wonderful, brilliant, amazing people, um, that do just really encourage each other and kind of back to that idea of networking, not being this like gross thing, but like all of these people are very much in your corner and want you to succeed. And that's something that I think is really cool about conservation is that there is so much work to be done <laughs> that we're always eager for more people to do it with us. And so, you know, that professor that I went up to to ask, hey, can I be in your lab is not only one of my biggest supporters, he's a friend now, you know, we've grown, it's what, like six to seven years later. And I would consider him a friend and he like, brags about me which is a crazy oh. thing like most of the time I'm sitting next to him blushing because he's just so excited that I didn't quit science and that I'm like making a career out of this thing and he's like more people are doing what we do and it's awesome Heck yeah. and as a like side tangent that particular professor also has a big um focus on promoting women in science and promoting uh, especially women of color in science, which is amazing. I think I don't actually, his lab at the time that I joined was all women. And wow. he's just, he's had so many female PhD students, which is just really great because you have someone in your corner who's like, hey, like things are tough sometimes, but like you can do it. I fully believe in you. 
Um, so that's wonderful. So ideally in, you know, 15 to 20 years, I want to do that for someone else um, and kind of be able to have that same kind of perspective of like, hey, conservation always needs more people. And if you want to do it, like, let me help you. Um, and so, yeah, I think in general, uh, back to the actual, you know, projection idea, I think I want to stay in nonprofit because I like the conservation on the ground mentality. Um, and I love the people. I feel like they're just big on the, we're going to get stuff done. Um, we have a whole like Slack channel dedicated to, it's just getting stuff done where <laughs> you just talk about the small victories. Cause that's also important, right? Is like celebrating the little wins that add up to big things. Um, so I mentioned that I think I'm going to go back for my PhD, um, just so I have some more opportunities to, you know, move up um, and have a little bit more say in the types of projects that are done because I have a lot of ideas about how conservation can be improved and, you know, what areas we need to add more focus in and where we should have more funding. And so being able to execute those would be nice. So, yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, I have all the faith in the world that you'll do all that and more. Um, I can't tell you how much I've appreciated and just had so much fun getting to hear about your perspective, your story, about your very clear and abundant passion for your field. And I, yeah, it just always fills me with a lot of joy um, to see someone so in their place, in their station in society, serving in a way that they're equipped for and feel so connected to. Um, and so I have loved that and very much appreciated the opportunity to learn from you. So thank you so much, Lauren. Yeah, thank you for allowing me to go on and on and on about wildlife conservation. As I mentioned, it's not hard to get us talking. So. Um, oh, I didn't want you to stop. <laughs> <laughs> but much appreciate you being an active listener and for doing this kind of thing where we get to just talk about all the different careers that exist in the world and how like you really can find, I would think that even outside of conservation, if you have a passion for something like yeah. you can make it happen as a career. Um, exactly. so. That's what I'm trying to tell people. Thanks for backing me up. <laughs> yeah, thanks for getting the message across. <laughs> Very much appreciate it. It makes it feel much more uh, the norm rather than, you know, this exception of somebody doing something that they love as their career. Like, no, that's, that's how we should all go about our lives, right? right. Is that like, if we're going to spend this much time at work, it might as well be something that we enjoy and that benefits some greater good in some way shape or form so oh my gosh i i am slow clap i'm trying to make myself not slow clap to that that was just <laughs> mm. i believe in everything you're saying and oh, love this If anything about the career path featured in this episode piqued your interest, don't stop here. Take what you've learned, critically examine any follow-up questions you might have, and network to your heart's content to get the answers that you'd like, as well as make meaningful contacts with professionals in that industry that might be able to help you get your foot in the door. If you have a friend who would love all the detailed insider info shared in this episode, don't forget to pass this episode along to them so we could create a network of people who are empowered with the information they need to confidently make satisfying career decisions that allow them to serve in the station in society they were meant for. Thank you to everyone who has supported this labor of love known as the Job Library by leaving a rating and a written review of this podcast. It sincerely makes all the difference to a budding podcast like this one. If you'd like to support the show, just join in by tapping the stars to leave a really quick rating and better yet, write a few words to leave a written review and subscribe. I hope you enjoy the other Bingeable episodes now available to you in the Job Library series and tune in next Tuesday for a fresh batch of interviews with professionals in fascinating, unique, and influential positions. See you soon.